Last but certainly not, certainly not least, I want to thank you guys, the attendees. I know that everyone at South by Southwest feels very lucky to be part of this amazing community. There are so many people in this room and in the two video spillover rooms that do so much amazing stuff that is so inspiring to us on so many different levels. The fact that so many of you have come to Austin for South by Southwest Interactive is very humbling. And as I have said before, we are very honored by your presence at our little event. Please give yourself a big round of applause. All right, on that note, I want to reaffirm that the growth and continued improvement of South by Southwest Interactive depends on your feedback. If you have praise or constructive criticism or brainstorms on something we can do better for 2008, please let us know at inter at southbysouthwest.com. Yes, your feedback is extremely important. Also, a few reminders about tonight's events. We have DorkBot beginning at 6 p.m. at Brush Square Brush Creek Square, that's right next door to the Austin Convention Center. Also, the Frog Design opening party kicks off at 8 p.m. at 401 Guadalupe. That's within easy walking distance of the Austin Convention Center as well. Be sure to check your program book or your pocket guide or southbysouthwest.com for a complete list of evening events. One more thing, have fun tonight, but don't have too much fun. Remember that tomorrow is the first day of daylight savings time which means you have to set your clocks forward an hour. That means an hour less sleep, as if any of you guys were going to sleep anyway. All right, one more thing. We talked about the pocket guide before. We've designed a really neat feature in here, which is so neat that apparently no one quite understands how it works. That would be your pocket guide. That is in the envelope in the very back of your, the program book. So please refer to that. That has all the information that's in the program book, but in a much smaller format. That's all I have. I want to thank you again for being part of South by Southwest Interactive in 2007. It is my great pleasure to introduce Kathy Sierra. Thank you. Is this on? Cool. This slide was just to get you in the mood. Oh, this is tough because I can't really see with these lights. Uh, I thought we'd start the conference by finding out why you guys are actually here. Why did you come to South by Southwest? And I'm going to have you tell me in a minute. But first, is anyone live blogging this? Uh, a few pe- Oh, I'll get there. Okay, a few people. So let's think about this. We could strap those people into the uh, presentation appreciation chair and everyone else could leave. There's no reason for you guys to be here because someone's live blogging it. They're recording it. There's chat. I'm sure there's some of that going on back there. And, of course, there's Twitter. So this is really confusing. You all are the ones who are responsible for making the products and evangelizing the products that make this whole thing unnecessary so that you don't have to be here. But you're still here. So we have to think about why. And that's a really important question. And, and it's a question that we're going to have to address. Because if, if we're out there telling people that, well, our software is all you need, you don't actually need real humans, it's clearly 
you're all here. So there's really only one reason, logical reason, why you'd be here? <laughs> that one's a little trickier in your software, although people are working on it, probably some of you. Now, there are scientists that have a theory about this. This is actually of great interest to scientists, is what is that thing about being with real human beings? And one of the main theories is that it could just be smell. That you're actually all here. So that's the cute, gratuitous picture. This is what it's more like. But. <laughs> so they think that might be why we actually have this, this interaction with real humans. Um, but there's a lot of other theories, too. Uh, we're probably not going to put smell in our products right now, although I heard that's coming, too. So if we want to make applications that have some little lovable quality, we need to put a little bit more humanness. Now, I'm not talking about the humane interface or having good usability or all the things that there are lots of talks about that going on at the conference. Lots of you are working on that. So we're going to talk about something a little extra, a little different from just having a more humane interface, something that's actually a little bit more human. But first, I want to know who's here. I'm going to divide you into groups. And uh, there are three groups. Some of you may fall into more than one group. So when I mention your group, and I'll tell you when, I want you to stand up so we can all see the people that are in that group. So there'll be three groups. And again, if you fit in more than one group, you can stand up for each one of your groups. So there's going to be designers, coders, and money people. And the, I don't know how to describe the money people. They're VCs or the business people, the ones who are looking for the rest of you to do something for them. So first one we're going to do is designers. Don't stand up yet. If you are a designer, then this quote probably makes sense to you. <laughs> so if that's you... Stand up right now and stay standing. If you're a designer, ooh, a lot, okay. And I see that there's little clusters, too. So that means there must be clusters of coders somewhere. Okay. All right, excellent. You guys have good hair, too. Okay, uh, now. Uh, here's the next group. Coders. I had to use real models for this one. Okay. So this question, if you could choose between coding an open source web app or having sex, there's actually no gender difference, it turns out. It's just a language question. <laughs> so if, if that's you, if you're a coder, stand up. And again, you might have been a designer too. Lots of overlap. Okay, very cool. Ruby or Python? No, never mind. Ruby. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a category for assembler. Okay. Uh, I couldn't figure out what to even show. I, I don't even know if the money people have a sense of humor. So just, <laughs> if you're a money person, VC, business person, anything like that, and you might also be a designer and a coder too, but I still want you to proudly stand up. Mark Hedlund. <laughs> the one I know. Oh, lots of you. All right, so stay standing. So the rest of you who are looking for work, you want to be looking at these guys. <laughs> All right, go ahead and sit down. Thank you. So right now, I want you to just take a minute 
And I want you to find two people, and it's going to be tough because you were in little clusters, little clusters of designers, clusters of coders. I want you to introduce yourself to two people who were not in the group that you're in. So go ahead and do that now. I'll give you just a minute, and that's it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just... <laughs> job interviews, just introduce yourself. Okay, excellent. Thank you. You can stop now. You have, you have the rest of the week. All right, so this is a good practice. Everyone who's been to South by Southwest before knows that that's really the trick, and there's the whole smell thing. But just make sure that you, and, and coders and designers don't necessarily smell the same way, so make sure that you introduce yourself to other people that are not in your group. So <clears throat> back to why we're all here when we don't need to be, because we're the people that are getting rid of the reasons for us to be here. So we have to think about what we're going to do with that information. There's something missing. Uh, there's a lot of things missing, but there's some human quality that we actually can add into our products pretty easily. How many people have actually been in the interactive world since the beginning, like since the beginning of this festival? Oh, some of you were like, weren't even born. Okay, that's terrible. <laughs> All right. Um, the big thing was that we were moving to interaction from things that didn't interact at all. So those of us who were there like in the early days of CD-ROMs, it was like, this is amazing. Now we can actually have our software carry on a conversation. For programmers like me, this was very cool because then it meant my software can have the conversation that I don't want to have with people. And it was so cool. And then somehow we got away from that. We got into multimedia. We started focusing on all the wrong things. And kind of the interactive part of uh, interaction sort of went away. Or it became just usability. So we need to talk about that interaction in a more human term. Now, there are two things that we can do to, to acknowledge the fact that we're all here when we don't need to be. We can help our users get together with each other offline. I'm going to say very little about that because there's a lot of stuff going on at the conference about that. But the other one is to make our interactions in our software feel more human. So that's mostly what we're going to talk about. But first, I'll address this. We have to accept that face-to-face -face matters. Those of you who've, who've been to any of my passionate user talks know that when we reverse engineer passion, you find that wherever there's passion, people are getting together with other people alive, real time, face to face, people who share that passion. And the more they get together offline, the more their passion grows. So anything we can do to support that, because uh, that one picture is a little bit more interesting than the other picture. So how can we encourage offline community. Again, there'll be sessions about that, so I won't say much. The easiest thing is just to try to start or, or help support a user group. I've seen some people do things like a three-page PDF on how to start a user group with some very simple guidelines and materials. There's a whole, um, there's a whole wiki 
on how to uh, start your own bar camp. There are all kinds of, and, and you know, you can put anything in front of the word camp. So there's been wine camp and nonprofit camp and all sorts of weird camps. So hold low-cost events where people can come together. Anything you can do. Uh, this is probably the best resource that you have is meetup.com. And here are just a few that are on the front page today. There's a meetup for everything. Um, here are just some of the sessions. You don't have to write these down. I'm just showing you that there's some community sessions here. This is just a few. So make sure that you go to some of those and start thinking about how to get your users together offline. Now we'll go back online. So how can we make our apps feel more human without the smell part? So what can a human do with another human that they can't do with a computer? See, I was not thinking that when I wrote this slide either. Um, they can't do this. A user can't make that face to a computer. I can do it to you, and chances are you're going to respond in some way. You're at least going to recognize it, although we'll talk about why that's questionable too. But a user can't do this to your software. I mean, they can, they can arrange their face in that situation, but the computer's saying, you know, that's dead to me. It's not paying attention to that face. It doesn't know it's there. And that's so crucial to interaction. Can't ask a question. And I'll tell you why FAQs are nothing like real questions. So these are the two things I can't do with the computer. There are more, but these are two crucial human things that we do in interaction all the time. When I'm interacting with you, I can look confused which I'm really good at, and I can ask a question. But people can't do that with our software. Here are a few other things. Just I want you to look at that face, think about whether your software knows anything about that face and whether that's meaningful. Think about whether you've ever made that face to your software or anyone's software. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is crucial. Being able to look confused and having the other entity somehow respond to that is crucial. And it's not just humans. Here's the gratuitous. <laughs> I love that one. One more time with the puppy. Okay, so let's take a little quiz. Detour. Um, I'll read these just in case they're too small for the people in the back. I just want you to see if there are any of these that you can answer yes to. I can focus on certain things for long periods. I have unusually strong, narrow interests. I do certain things in an inflexible way. I'm very good at picking up details and facts. I'm considered highly intelligent. I have difficulty recognizing nonverbal communication, including facial expression, body posture, eye gaze. People often say I was rude, even when this was not intended. What human condition that many of us here suffer from does this describe? I don't know if you can read that little banner. It was a t-shirt. Aspies unite, and then at the bottom it says, oh, right, like we're going to hold hands. <laughs> so uh, really only in the tech world are people really proud of, the, you know, how, how much Asperger's are you? Well, okay, so uh, what other thing could answer those questions? Yes. Yeah. So this is what we have to deal with. Now, but our, our apps shouldn't worry because apparently I saw this on Amazon. All cats have Asperger's too, so. 
I gotta, my daughter's like, I've got to read that book. Okay, so we have to compensate. So how are we going to compensate for the fact that our computers, our software just has no idea what that person's facial expressions are? Well, we have to give our app a way to know that the user is confused. This is a really critical time for a user. Now, remember, my focus is on creating passionate users, not just creating people who survive uh, the, you know, their first few days or weeks with your software. This is a crucial time. So if we don't pick up on the fact that this is what he's going through, we're going to lose that person. And, of course, then we have no chance for passion. So we're not just going for survival. Nobody's passionate when they suck. And this is seriously an I suck moment. So this is a slide that many of you have seen before. We're going to focus on this a lot because this is crucial. There are some key milestones when someone's interacting with your software. And I don't care if it's a really complicated app or even the simplest app. It's all relative to what perceived value they think they're going to get and how hard they think it should be. And some of the web apps that y'all have written shouldn't be as hard as they are to use. Now, and y'all know who I'm talking about, too. So the first time, all of you, now the first time, there's a little tricky part, just getting started. What does it take to get up to the suck threshold? So the suck threshold means I no longer suck. I'm not good. I'm not excited. I'm not passionate. But, God, I don't suck anymore, and that's good. If we don't recognize that face, we're going to have problems getting people past that threshold. Now, that's a crucial time. The passion threshold is when they're actually way past the suck threshold and they're really getting, starting to get good. And now they have a chance at having that actually become a passion. And a little bit later we'll talk about how it's, it's really not passion about your tools. It's a passion for whatever your tools are supporting them in doing. So that's a crucial time we have to think about. Really, he who gets his users up that curve more quickly, all other things being equal, probably wins. Anyone who can get your users past the suck threshold faster than the competition and then also ramp up more quickly to the part where they're good enough to maybe even become passionate, that's a huge advantage. So we still need our apps to know when the person's confused. Well, there's a lot of research being done. This is a whole conference, uh, an IEEE conference just on face and gesture recognition. Lots of research has been going on for years all sorts of things. It's very complicated. Very, very complicated. They're working on it. And, you know, with millions of dollars and a little bit more time, we can, we can do that. Or we can try a simpler solution. <laughs> and we just let the user tell us. I mean, we just let them tell us. Now, um, yeah, don't freak out because uh, it says WTF. It doesn't have to be blue. It could be like a different color. So if you're a UI designer, don't worry about that. This way, when the user's making that face, she gets to say to her computer, all right, I know you don't know what I look like, so I'm going to tell you what my face looks like right now and click that button. Now, in a minute, we're going to have to talk about, well, then what? You know, nice to know, but what do you do? So FAQs and online help, this is the biggest myth of all, is that people say, well, isn't that what they're doing when they choose help? Aren't they saying, I'm confused? Isn't that WTF? No, because the person who wrote help thinks you look like this. They think that <laughs> you're, you wear your little collar up and you, you have a tablet PC and you're, you're happy and you're kind of mildly interested. 
in what's in the help file. And you're smiling and everything's cool and, and you're casual, there's no pressure, but really you actually look like this. <laughs> so that's a problem. There's a big, big gap between the, <laughs> what the help thinks you feel and what you actually feel and look like. So no, going to the menu and choosing help is not saying WTF. So we need something different. Um, so th th there's nothing wrong with help and FAQs. They're nice reference documents. Um, they're for a different part of the curve. And I don't care about the part of the curve that exists where these things are written. I care about getting people through that suck threshold because that's when you're going to lose them. And that's where you're going to lose any competitive advantage. So if online help was the solution, if it really recognized that that's what the guy looked like, the first line, the first thing you could choose in online help would be don't panic because it would assume that you're really freaking out here. So I'm going to burn that in. I'm going to give you a little example in Excel. This is an extreme example um, because it's Excel. But um, this is actually a real session that I captured from someone. So I sat down with someone, and this was, this was honestly what they were doing. Uh, I, you know, I used to use Excel a long time ago. This is the, the other person talking. And all I want to do is add up the numbers in this column. I mean, I know that's what Excel does. That's what spreadsheets do. That's all I want to do. So I'm pointing to where those numbers are. And the person said, I just want the total of the numbers in a column. So he chooses, use the office assistant. That sounds good. And he gets the little guy, which I've actually covered up. Yeah, now it's the little dancing computer guy. It's not the paperclip. So um, he types in, add up numbers. And you know, it gives him responses like this that are really helpful. So OK, how about make a formula? That sounds good. I think they call it formulas. Here are the responses. Those are really helpful. OK, let me go to the real help. Maybe the office assistant, that little computer guy with the big feet is just stupid. I'll go to the real help. Add up numbers. I still get this huge list of hits that are either really overwhelming and complicated or just don't even have any bearing on the thing that I did. Oh, let's type make a formula. No, that didn't work. Let's type make an equation. That didn't work. How about just formula? And then we get to something like really complicated. No, I don't want to know the syntax. I just want to know how to do it, that easy way where you select the things and say some. And, you know. So that's a problem. And then just for fun, he typed WTF. And it actually said, this is true, <laughs> it didn't recognize WTF. Now, if the, if the full F word offends you, just avert your gaze, because the next thing he typed, <laughs> and he got a ton of hits. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's like. What's new in Microsoft Excel? Picked up on the one. You know. um, ways to forecast values. What happened to my module sheet? Anyway, it was hilarious. So there's no WTF button, but there is a what the that you can enter. But it just doesn't get you to anything useful. So remember, there's not necessarily anything wrong with the help and the FAQs that we usually have. It's just they're written for the wrong person at a different level. So. This is what we call the canyon of pain. The person isn't able, the user isn't able to express what they're really feeling. And they don't even know what the thing is called. 
So, for example, this is something I might want to say. This is something I could say to a person. How do I say this to the computer? How do I do that? I'm expected to know the thing that I'm using help to find out, and that's a big problem. Now, again, it's not just for big, you know, that's an extreme end, Excel, something really big and difficult. It could be the simplest thing. And maybe, if you want passionate users, maybe these things that, that, that people make a face about are not really about the tool itself. Maybe the tool, maybe your tool is really easy, but the thing they're using your tool to do is not. Maybe they're tilting their head because I'm confused about the nature of the thing I'm trying to do. I know how your tool does it because your tool is pretty easy to use. But I just, I'm missing something. Well, then we're still going to lose them because we want them up that curve. It's not, it's not enough for them to come up the curve on your tool. They have to, if they're going to be passionate, they've got to come up the curve on the thing they're using your tool to do. Because when people say they're passionate about a tool, they're not. They're just expressing the passion they have for the thing the tool enabled. So that's what we want to focus on. And that same face could be made about something that has nothing to do with the tool, <clears throat> excuse me, but rather the thing he's using the tool to do. So the more we can help him look confused about whatever it is, the better we're going to be. Y'all should have that one memorized by now, but I'll show it again. So that's how we let the user tell us we have this little button that says, I'm confused. We still don't know what to do. So if we can't just use FAQs, what do we do? Well, we can start by thinking like a human. This is what people were starting to do in the earliest days of interactive CD-ROMs, is say, what can we replicate that's sort of like the human experience? Or at least, how can we minimize some of the downsides? And of course, one of the biggest downsides is it can't recognize your facial expressions. So, in real life, if you're talking to someone and they look confused, you'd do something. If, if you were being kind, if you actually like that person, what would you do? What are the kinds of things you'd do if someone looks confused when you're talking to them? Ask them. Ask them a question. Because if they just say, I'm confused, well, you might need to know more context. You might be able to tell the context already. But if you can't, it doesn't hurt to ask. You're going to have to start to drill down and find out, all right, what are you confused about? Where did you get lost? So we need some kind of dialogue with the user. And again, there are research projects. Um, some of you have probably worked on natural language processing systems. So this is a field of artificial intelligence that's been going on like you know since the history of the world. And it's, it's getting better, but we're not there yet. However, um, this was I was in the field of interactive learning a long time ago, and this was a really interesting area of research because we were trying to make um, what was called intelligent tutoring systems at the time, basically artificial intelligence meets you know, CBT, computer-based learning. And we wanted the student to be able to say, I don't understand what's happening right here, and for the system to be able to talk back and forth and have a dialogue. So there's a lot of research on this. Um, and a lot of it is called explanatory dialogues. That's one of the areas of research. And I read this um, set of books on this, this uh, academic project on carrying on this explanatory dialogue. And it was fascinating. And at the very end, at the very end, what they said was, um, oh, actually, we ran out of money, so we couldn't do the whole natural language processing thing. So instead, we had all these transcripts 
of things that people had said. And we just said, well, maybe that's captured everything or most of everything that people would actually want to say. And let's just put them in menu items and lists and let people choose instead of having the real dialogue, instead of having them type in exactly what they want and responding to them. And it turned out that they got about 80%, actually 80 to 90% of the perceived benefit of what they wanted from that, you know, for almost no cost, with just letting the user choose, but choose the right things, not like what we put in FAQs. So again, we think of frequently asked questions as, well, isn't that what they are, frequently asked questions? But usually, again, they're frequently asked questions by the guy holding the tablet PC with the cute little shirt. So not by the real person who's actually struggling. So it turns out that we can capture and have a very short dialogue with our users and go a long way toward helping them feel like the computer has actually perceived what they were really thinking. And it could be anything, anything that you can use. And in fact, in a second, I'll tell you about how even if you can't change your software, there's still something that you can do with this. So here's the big goal of having WTFs instead of FAQs. And again, well, in addition to FAQs, is you want to get the user to the right context. So uh, when I brought up the confused person and, and you said, well, I'd ask a question. So if you ask a question, you can get people to the right context. It, a lot of times with FAQs and online help, they don't go backwards. They don't say to the user, oh, I see, you actually went too far. You're not even in the right place. They just assume that you landed in the right place and you know where you are, when a lot of times you don't even know how you got there and you went too far. So one of the goals is to find out if it needs to actually put you in a whole different place and not have you have to know what that place is or I wouldn't have chosen this in the first place. And then give them understandable questions that don't assume all this prior terminology knowledge or even conceptual knowledge. It should be at the level the user is at at that moment. So let them choose from a high-level statement. This is how you could start a dialogue. I'm lost. Why did that happen? I don't know what it's called, but I need it. If you could let the user choose one of these things, and again, this isn't how you modify all of your help. This would be a special branch, because obviously you're not going to present big wizards and dialogue boxes for your advanced users who are smiling and happy and just want that little bit more information for something they forgot. This is for the person who's code blue, who's more critical. So one thing you could do is just ask a couple questions, maybe even just one, and then narrow down the user choices, and then just present a big list. It could be that simple. It doesn't have to be anything that's really um, elaborate and sophisticated. So it is like way better context-sensitive help. A lot of times the problem with context-sensitive help, especially if you look at things like tooltips, right? it's like if I'm in code blue situation, I don't care what the damn thing is called. And I don't even really care what it's used for. I care how it relates to the thing I actually think I'm trying to do right now. So most context-sensitive help is too tree-focused when it needs to be forest-focused. So this could give you a way to have way better context-sensitive help. And if you don't know the context because your software, that's another question. Your software probably should know where the user is. But anyway, even if it doesn't, it doesn't matter because you can still emulate context-sensitive help without having it to actually uh, know where they were just by asking just a simple question. So give the user a way to express himself. This is not the guy. That's just a gratuitous puppy photo. Um, and those of you who've been to my other talks know why I put the gratuitous puppy photo. Okay, something just happened to your brain. Now, anyway, 
So just for fun, I thought, well, why stop with WTF? What other emotions might you be feeling when you're interacting with a piece of software or when your users are interacting with a piece of software? I know you assume they're all smiling, but maybe instead of words, you could just have the face, and they just click on the face. Yes, that's my face. And because, you know, all buttons have tooltips. <laughs> you know, this guy's on a deadline. This one, um, I don't know what he's thinking. <laughs> and I'm not sure I want to know. So, and I'm not sure I'd want to know how to respond. But anyway. And then this is the most common one. Now, the problem with that one is he's not really saying you suck, right? He's feeling, I suck. That's the big problem. You know, he might be saying, I hate you guys for what you've done, but he's hating you because you're making him feel like an idiot. So I, I took the trouble of modifying the Office Assistant in Microsoft Excel. So what it does now is it says, what would you like to do? But this would be more appropriate. You just click on the button. And then hopefully it would know what to respond. So even if you can't modify your application, you can still do it with your documentation. And a lot of times it's just a matter of reorganizing it. Um, this is our book series. And a lot, of people, uh, a lot of people have a lot of questions about what are the things that actually make these books work so well. And uh, Bert and I, when we designed this series, because we came from interactive software and artificial intelligence, we were horrified by the thought of trying to put a user experience in a flat, 2D, uninteractive book. And especially because we come from the field of learning. And, and it was like, oh, how are we going to compensate for all of the problems? And we came to the same conclusion, what is it a student can do in a classroom that they can't do with the book? Well, they can look confused. And they can raise their hand and ask a question. And a teacher or a tutor or a mentor or a, you know, a sidekick, whoever it would be, would do something with that information. They wouldn't, well, a good teacher anyway. Some of them just keep on going. But if the person looks confused, a teacher will often ask a question, find out more about why they're confused, and then they might just try it a different way. They give you another chance. Most of the online help in FAQs, it's like you've got one shot. It's, it's like the computer saying, you know what, I'm only going to say this once, one way, and if you don't get it, that's your problem. And that's the kind of thing we're trying to solve. So this is just a book, but we put in context-sensitive. Um, they're similar to, to frequently asked questions. They might look like it on the surface, but they're captured from real user questions when users are really confused. And this is what you want people to say. And we get emails like this all the time. They say, oh, this part was driving me crazy, and I had this weird-ass question, and then, then there was the question. Right there. I didn't have to go to the back of the book. I didn't have to go to another section. It was right there just in time at the moment and the context at which it was driving me nuts. So you'll know when it's a little creepy. <laughs> Because they're like, ooh, how did it know? Um, and just the littlest bit of customization can do that. So sometimes it's just a more practical grouping. A lot of you know my big passion uh, are my horses. And um, I'm in this horse home study program. And one of the things they do is they know that, uh, you know, when you're working with your horse, you know, you can't be watching the DVD at the same time or holding some big book. So they give you these little pocket guides. But they're all for a specific context. When I'm out there, I'm not just in general working with the horse. I'm doing a specific thing. They put all the troubleshooting, the pitfalls, the tips, everything in that context is in one place. 
if my horse turns around and, like, say, charges me, I'm not going to run back to the house and look it up. I need to know right then, why is he charging me at this moment when I was doing this particular thing? And there might be 15 different reasons. But this troubleshooting that they've listed in their book is relative to the thing that I was just trying. And they, and they tell you how to work your way out of it right then. And again, this is crucial because, you know, I might get pissed off and never use your software again. But, you know, with a horse I could die. So it's, it's, it's kind of useful that it's context sensitive. Most importantly, we don't word things in FAQs and online help. Something happens to people and they stop being human when they write. And some of you have heard this story. Uh, so I worked at Sun Microsystems. And... Um, so I like to make fun of them, and uh, even though I love them. And one of the things they did with the documentation is, for a while, their editorial department for the group that I was in, which was Sun Education, they didn't want us to use contractions because it would be difficult to localize in some other just total bullshit. So uh, we said, wow, okay, who in, in Hollywood you know, doesn't use contractions? Like in a movie, well, it's on the screen. Anyway, in a movie, when, when, uh, you know, when the, the, the director wants to communicate that someone is not human, even if they look human, you can always tell because they don't use contractions. That's how you know. And that's how we were communicating to our users. So, like we were not human. So talk like a person. Now, there have been some really useful studies about how tiny changes in wording to use more conversational language in anything that you use to communicate with your users, anything at all, tiny changes in language to personalize it, like just using the word you, makes a huge difference. Um, in this, probably one of the biggest studies, so between 20 to 46% more solutions to transfer problems, and what that means is the person was able to transfer what they learned to their real job, whatever they were trying to do with it. And they made only the subtlest changes. This wasn't like we went from formal, arcane, academic language to, you know, slang. It was just slightly changing things. And the biggest change was using the word you. And it made a huge difference. So we have to think about that. Now, one of the interesting things is, well, why are these, why do we get such profound benefits from slightly changing the language to make it more conversational? And one of the theories is that when your brain is reading something that sounds conversational, because it sounds like it's talking to me. Your brain doesn't always know the difference between a real conversation, I should say a part of your brain, and a conversation that it's only reading. So your brain, when it reads conversational language, it starts going, crap, I'm in a conversation. I've got to hold up my end. I better pay attention. Just that little change. And all those little changes add up. So you want to talk like a real person. Maybe not like Scott, but... Um, or Jason, these are some of the people who are here or who have been here. Talk like Virginia, not Spock. Talk like Tantec. And you get a choice. <laughs> Two different versions, but they're both festive. So think about who you might talk Tom. No. No. So again, don't talk like a non-human. And engineers are the worst at this. So what I would, um, you know, part of my job was to extract forcibly um, knowledge from the heads of some of the engineers at Sun. And, um, and it was challenging. 
And if you saw them in action with their friends, and I'm sure this has all happened to you, and you probably all do this, they would just suddenly grab a, a, you know, a whiteboard marker or a pen and a napkin and start writing, and suddenly everything makes sense. And they come alive, and they explain it, and it's, you know, they haven't sucked all the life out of it. But then when they go to write about it, they go into writer mode. And most of us, me included, we aren't writers, and we just shouldn't even try to be. So we should just be talking. And, you know, your, your editor is going to clean up some of the things. You know, like you don't actually have to type um and uh, whatever else weird stuff that you would say. But just talk like a person. If you, if you just took a transcript of what most of you would say to a user if they really asked the question, and you just slapped that up there, as messy as that might be, it would be more effective than what most online help and FAQs are written like today because they're not written for real people. So... This is one thing I keep harping on on my blog and everywhere I get a chance, which is why do we treat the people who have already paid us so much worse than the people who haven't paid us? So we put all this effort into making the manuals are readable. The manuals assume I don't know anything and tell me wonderful things and get me excited and make me feel comfortable and and try to help me understand that, yes, you're going to be with me to get me through the I suck phase. And then we just drop them down the mine shaft once they've paid their, in this case, almost $2,000 for that T200 camera. I know. So um, it's about real people. So none of this sounds sexy. If you're talking about online documentation, most people never want to hear that the key to passionate users is actually just helping them learn. They don't want to hear that. And they want to assume it's some big marketing thing. Now, the, the good news is this is a hell of a lot cheaper. Because, again, even if you don't change your product, if it's a marketing question, you can outspend the big guys, although that's starting to not work anymore, or you can just out-teach your users so that your users get up that curve into something they can feel passionate about. Now, again, where there's passion, there is always a user kicking ass, or at least a user really on his way and knowing that he's going to get there and knowing that you're going to be there to support him. Now, why? Why is passion so connected to being really good at something? Because being really good at something makes that thing a higher resolution experience. So, for example, uh, some of you may be, well, some of you may be going to the music festival. And there may be some of you who are going to get laid or for beer. Some of you may actually understand something about the kind of music. And you may have some deep appreciation for some aspects of the music. You'll hear different notes. You'll hear more notes. You'll hear things the rest of us don't hear. I, I'm not a music expert, but I have a little bit of experience with mixing boards. So it kind of sucks because I'll, I'll go to a concert and I'm like, oh, if I could just get my hands on those faders. You know, and... Um, So it's a little bit of a higher resolution experience for me. Uh, Okay, look at this text. There are a bunch of designers in here, or you claim to be. I know you probably know what both of those fonts are. And I think there's even a website dedicated to the eradication of the one on top. (laughs) Which is what? Excellent. And, you know, the one, okay, now, don't say it yet. The one on the bottom I actually like, and then someone wrote to me and said, oh, my God, that's so 1968. So what, uh, so, wine. I know a lot of you have seen this, uh, seen me do this slide before. It's my favorite one because I think it's just bullshit. Um, This is what people claim about wine. So if you've seen the movie Sideways, you've seen that. I don't even know how to pronounce these things. The 1986 Chateau 
Thank you. See, these people actually, okay. As sumptuous aromas of cedar wood, something in French, wood smoke, and dried herbs with a subdued bouquet of minerals and celestial black currants, and of course the tannin suggests subtle nuances. People actually say this and believe that they perceive that. That's a higher resolution. There's a greater bit depth of wine for them. On the other hand, Robert Scoble says this. <laughs> it's just a one-bit experience for him. Red, white, all the choices you have to make. This picture. Some people have a higher resolution experience when they look at that. And I'm talking about resolution. Um, so Molly is a designer. She might say, good lines, good negative space. She's perceiving things about that picture. On the other hand, Eric might say, <laughs> big JPEG. And Bill Gates might say, another customer. So it depends on the resolution of experience that you have. One more time, until you can all do this on a whiteboard. Um, one more <laughs> My last gratuitous puppy picture. All right. Now, uh, the way I like to end, same way I always end, is to talk about the importance of what we're doing. We think that we're writing you know, silly little web apps, or maybe really important world-changing web apps, or games, or some other kind of software, whatever we're doing. But so often, we get bogged down sitting in the back room in our little cubicles or wherever, or maybe our little cool designer you know, um, uh, Airstream trailers. And anyway, and we're working, and we don't think about the impact of our work. And I know a lot of you are really savvy to, to the negative impacts of our work, but we don't think about how much we're changing people. Now, there are people building websites that are going to change the world, but if you think about the experiences that you give a user, if you can make a user just have a slightly better experience at something he's working on or something he's having fun on, if you can make him a little bit better at a game, just have five extra minutes of free time because you sped up his work, and most importantly, if you gave him an opportunity to be in the flow state, which I know most of you are familiar with that flow state, and the, the psychologists tell us that people report that when they're in a state of flow, those are some of the happiest moments of their life because all the troubles of the world, everything they're worried about, it just it vanishes, it drops away. Because as all programmers know, you're in flow when you're just, oh man, I am one compile away. Which is not necessarily true, but when you feel that way, nothing else in the world matters. And that's the kind of experience that we're giving to people all the time. So we don't have to change the world one giant scale at a time. We can just change it one user, one little five more minutes of joy at a time. And I feel grateful that I get to do that every day, and so do you. And I think we should all give ourselves a hand for helping people. And thank you all for being here. This is great. I'm done. Thank you. You guys are awesome.